Howdy, podcast listeners. The holidays are here, and it's time to deck the halls with wine. Nothing pairs better with holiday dinner parties than a bottle of award-winning Texas wine. Or maybe you have an uncle who's impossible to shop for. Wine makes a great gift for family, friends, and customers, and Somley has curated bundles that work for all budgets. Bring the Texas winery experience to your doorstep. Check out the Buy Wine section on Somley.com to see all of the bottles and bundles that are available. Cheers, y'all. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 56. It's the end of 2022, and it's time to take stock of all the big stories that happened in the Texas wine industry this year. There were some great times and certainly a few struggles. Today, I'm going to talk through it all with John Rivenberg of Kerrville Hills Winery. We talk about the Texas wine stories that made the news, those that didn't but should have, our personal Texas wine highs and lows, and even a few predictions about 2023. In other Texas wine news, I'll tell you what I've learned about the new William Chris Outpost at Uplift Vineyard, the cool new address for Lost Draw Cellars, Texas Wine Award winners, and more. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. San Francisco International Wine Competition just released the results of its latest wine competition, and some Texas wineries were big winners. The results were released on Forbes.com with commentary from a wine writer named Joseph McAuliffe. The best overall rosé, as well as the best rosé blend, was Becker Vineyards 2021 rosé in the Provençal style. It's a dry rosé, and it's $25. The author writes, this year's competition saw a significant increase in the number of entries from Texas, many ranked among the competition's top scoring wines. You'll hear me mention that quote again during my interview with John Rivenberg. The best Petite Syrah was the Messina Hoff Winery's 2020 Petite Syrah Private Reserve from the Texas High Plains, also $25. The top ranked Tempranillo was the Landon Winery's 2019 Tempranillo Reserve, from the Texas High Plains, $30. The best other red varietal wine was Bending Branch Winery's 2019 Tanat from Lost Pierogue Vineyards in the Texas Hill Country, $65. A Texas white wine won big too. The top late harvest Riesling was Wedding Oak Winery's 2021 Riesling Late Harvest from the Texas High Plains, coming in at $29. Congratulations to all the big winners. Of course, there were many more medals given to Texas wineries, and you can read the full results through the link in the show notes. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time this past weekend. I was in the Hill Country on opening weekend for the new Lost Draw Cellars location in Johnson City. There's a small tasting room, an outdoor space for tasting, an established vineyard, and soon they'll be breaking ground on a grand tasting room. The artist renderings look great, and there's a reel on my Texas Wine Pod Instagram account where you can see what the final product may look like. This piece of property is gorgeous, and I'm sure will be an incredible spot for Lost Draw sellers to continue to grow. 
While I was there, I scored an invitation for a tasting at William Chris Wine Company's newest brand that hasn't even been officially launched yet. The new brand is called Uplift Vineyard, and it will feature ultra-premium wines from Uplift Vineyard, which was formerly known as Hoover Valley Vineyard. Remember, William Chris Wine Company bought Hoover Valley Vineyard in the summer of 2021. This is a 78-acre property, and there are 55 acres of vines located between Kingsland and Burnett, just south of Lake Buchanan. Soon, William Chris will unveil a new tasting room there, and it will have a decidedly high-end approach. There will be limited tasting appointments available daily, and they will include a culinary component. You'll be tasting uplift vineyard wines, not necessarily wines from the rest of the William Chris portfolio. Claire Richardson has been the assistant winemaker at William Chris, working under Tony Ophiel, and she'll be the head winemaker at Uplift Vineyard. She'll get her choice of grapes that are grown there. There are over 10 varieties planted. Zen Brown will be directing things at Uplift Vineyard, and I sat down with him and a few others to taste through the first few wines to come from this property since the acquisition. We tasted a white wine that is actually labeled as a Lost Draw Cellars wine with an Uplift Vineyard designation, two Montepulcianos, an Alianico, and a Cabernet Sauvignon. The Cab and the newest Monte were barrel samples, and everything was great, and the whole vibe of the new brand is elevated. The Uplift Vineyard wines will be premium priced, and they'll be produced in limited quantities. Most of what's produced will go straight to the wine club, which is already filling up. Bingham Family Vineyards in Fredericksburg is moving from the current location near Yeehaw Ranch Outfitters. The Binghams have purchased the former location of 0815 Winery in High and will be moving in there after a bit of a remodel. Betty Bingham says, We at Bingham are excited to be centered in a group of wineries that are serious about making quality Texas wine. As a 100% estate winery, we look forward to continuing to share our High Plains AVA wines in the Texas Hill Country, as well as our Grapevine, Roanoke, and Meadow locations. The Jefferson Cup Invitational is a wine competition that is by invitation only. The wines selected must exemplify top viticulture and winemaking throughout America. Four Texas wines won the Jefferson Cup. The Pedernales Cellars Grenache from 2020, Texas High Plains. The Pedernales Cellars Block Zero 2018 from Bell Mountain. Ron Yates Friesen Blend 2019 from the High Plains, and Spicewood Vineyards Tandem 2019 from the Texas High Plains. Wineries from 24 states were selected to participate in this invitational. Jefferson Cup founder Doug Frost says, In most other competitions, there is an open seating, and California represents 90% of the entries. As a result, it usually captures 90% of the honors. What we are doing is following Mr. Jefferson's example, that's Thomas Jefferson, and allowing every quality wine-producing region in America a place at our table. By selecting both vinifera and non-vinifera wines for the Jefferson Cup each year, the hope is to respect the diversity of American viticulture and Jefferson's own acceptance of native varieties and hybrids. By the way, founder Doug Frost is one of the very few people in the world to hold the titles of both Master Sommelier and Master of Wine. Forbes just published an article called December Wines from Virginia, Texas, and California. Only one Texas wine was listed in the article. It was the Mayak Vineyard and Winery's Cardinal Kiss. It's a black Spanish dry rosé wine, and it's a 2021 vintage. This is a 10% alcohol wine, 
that is orange colored with aromas of orange rind, candy cane, salt, herbs, and maraschino cherries. Remember, a recent podcast guest was Lynn Mayek. Congratulations to Mayek Vineyard on this mention. There are two major opportunities for in-depth learning coming up for people in the wine industry. The first is the Texas Wine Marketing Research Institute offering a course called Licensing and Compliance in the Wine Industry. It meets online starting in March, and the instructor is Eric Sigmund. If you want to brush up on your legal reporting requirements, then this is the course for you. The link will be in the show notes. And a final reminder about the new Texas Wine Certification course that will be offered January 16th in Horseshoe Bay, just before the start of the Texas Hill Country Winery Symposium. This is a full-day course led by Kelsey Kramer, the Director of Education at William Chris Wine Company. It's designed to arm attendees with not only a strong understanding of Texas wine, but also the ability to communicate the Texas wine story with consumers in a meaningful way. So it's designed for people who have customer-facing roles and winery tasting rooms. And I know that everyone is excited about this course rolling out. Registration is live now, and spots are limited, so be sure to sign up soon. I'll be there too, thanks to the generosity of William Chris Wine Company and Texas Hill Country Wineries. During part of my time in the Texas Hill Country just recently, I attended a retreat put on by The Vind. The Vind is an app that can be used to help create an itinerary for your trip to Texas Wine Country. Along with nine other women, I visited some wineries and tasting rooms, had some great food and wine, and shopped a little bit too. If you download the Vind app, you can see the different places that I have recommended on suggested itineraries, and you can start to build out your own trip. It's all free, by the way. I had the best time with these ladies and was thrilled that many of their followers will now get to see how much fun a trip to the Texas Hill Country is. I was most excited about the visits to Texas wineries, of course, and a highlight for me was Adega Vino, where everyone got the chance not only to taste Texas wine and award-winning library wines at that, but also to walk the vineyard with Michael Bilger and really get the connection between the land and what's in the glass. We even got to taste some of Michael's very special port out of barrel, and I'm excited for that release. We also visited High Meadow, and I saw the production side of things, which was new to me. We got to thieve a barrel sample by ourselves, which was a first for me. Owner Mike Baytek was on hand, and we had a nice chat while everyone else headed out to feed the donkeys. It was my first time to visit Meyerstone, and wow, I'm already impressed, and they've only been open for three months. The tasting room is gorgeous as it is, and they've got even bigger plans for expansion and an estate vineyard. Rob Nida is making the wine, and the wines are quite impressive too. My favorite was an oak-aged Roussan, which is super savory and complex. Slate Theory Winery was decorated for Christmas, and although I've been in the cave for tours and receptions, I'd never done a tasting down there. There's no place like the cave at Slate Theory, in the Hill Country or in Texas for that matter. In non-Texas wine stops, we had tasty pizzas at Untamed Wine Estates and a tremendously educational tasting at Six Twists, the new sparkling wine stop at Elk in Maine. Six Twists managed to hit the sweet spot of being both educational and fun, so it appealed to everyone. Thanks to The Vine for hosting me and to all the wineries and the other sponsors for welcoming us. And cheers to my fellow retreaters who made it all so much fun. These ladies are putting out some fabulous content from our trip. 
But I hope they remember our pact that what happens on Brooks Bubble Bus stays on Brooks Bubble Bus. Find the link to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. My guest today is John Rivenberg, owner of Kerrville Hills Winery and the Hill at High. He's immediate past president of the Association of Texas Hill Country Wineries, and he's been a big supporter of this podcast. I knew he would be the right person to talk through the top Texas wine stories of the year. He didn't have to be asked twice to talk with me and to share his unfiltered opinions on all the Texas wine scoop. Here's our conversation. Well, I'm so glad that you're willing to sit down and discuss some of the highlights and maybe some of the low points of the calendar year 2022, John. Thank you for having me. You're the um, first person that I've ever invited to come back for a second time on the podcast. So I hope you feel special. I feel very special. I was like tickled to death when I got the email with the title, the subject line said Rivenberg unplugged. Uh, I sent that out to everybody that works with me and they, you know, the responses were, were uh, quite vibrant. So, yes, well, um, they probably want rights to do some editing, but we'll, we'll hope for the best. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. I pre-warned everybody. I was like, if you know, you, you, if you see this link that comes out and your name is attached, like, you know, usual, because you were, you were commented on, you might not necessarily like what was said, but Uh-oh. so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been quite a year. And um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on in particular is because you've had a big year um, at the incubator at Carville Hills and also opening a new place in High. And I want to talk about some of your personal highs and lows. But first, I'm going to start with kind of the bigger picture of the Texas wine industry. And certainly one of the big topics has been new wineries opening up. And um, some have just opened like new, a new outpost, like I know Lost Draws opening in Johnson City. And also, I just got news today that Bingham Family Vineyards is relocating from where they are into the old spot where 0815 Winery was located in High. So you have a new neighbor in High soon. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we caught wind of that from Betty and Cliff a few weeks ago and pretty excited for them. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on, um, especially it seems like in that part of the hill country, a lot of people moving into Johnson City and High. And there are also some folks moving in. I would say one of the big Texas news stories is that there are some Californians moving in. And how do we feel about that? Well, wait, there's California wineries coming <laughs> to Texas? Shocking, I oh know. My, oh my gosh, is that sh- that's totally shocking to me. I, I did not know that. <laughs> um, no, Yeah, it's, um, you know... I, it's one of those things, Shelly, that is, um, you know, we knew for a very long time that once we started to operate good businesses and create some momentum in our area, that there will be people from outside our region wanting to come here. Um, I've been very blessed and had the ability to work on the West Coast a little bit and get to know that industry um, from the inside uh, as well. And knowing, you know, that I mean, Texans make up a huge portion of their their buyer, right? And so they they love Texas, right? The Texans through most recessions have had, you know, pretty insulated economy and have been able to go out and spend some money in California. Um, and you know, everybody knows that we're pretty favorable to to business and, and entrepreneurship. And so it wasn't a big surprise to me that we started to have people um come this direction. Um 
just whether it was the the business climate or um, you know the ability to take advantage of the traffic that we've created in our in our hospitality and agritourism. Um, it's so yeah, it's it's not surprising to me. It's a little little unnerving, but it's not surprising to me. I've given this a lot of thought. Of course, there's been a ton of discussion about it in some of the Facebook groups. And I think where I've come down is that I love wine destinations all around the world. But when I go to a wine destination, I am truly trying to enjoy the wine that is from that region. And so it is important to me, and I think I think you and others, that the Texas wine industry be represented first and foremost in any place in Texas. That we're not just a generic wine destination for people to come taste some wine. Although that's always been kind of a small portion of what you can do if you visit, say, the Hill Country. And I don't want to discount those wineries. I'm sure they're lovely. But if you're visiting Texas wine country, I I want the focus to be on Texas wineries that are making wine from Texas grapes. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more, Shelly. I mean, quite honestly, you know, nowhere in in the world that you were going for wine agrotourism would you be drinking a wine from another imported from another region just for the sake of you know the traffic um it's it, it this is not something that's new you know i find it a little comical that all of a sudden you know it's kind of coming to light but i mean this goes back over a decade in my career talking about you know defining what a winery is defining what a vineyard is um authenticity in wines uh and having a sense of place you know coined by Point by Chris and Bill, you know, having a sense of place is super important. And I've always very much agreed with that. Um, you know, it's it's a fine line, right? Because, you know, I am a, a I'm an open and fair trade business guy. But at the same time, you, you have to have authenticity in what you're doing. And when it's not, um, how can you say this? When it's not the same apples to apples environment, it's hard, right? So it's hard for startup wineries to compete with somebody who can bring in, you know, lower cost fruit and they don't have uh, an operation that they have to support from, a, you know, from a, from a bottom line. And it allows those operations to put more into ambiance and hospitality and pay people, um, you know, higher wages to be at their tasting bar because they're not, a lot of them, producing wines uh, on their own. And so that's, that's difficult, right? Um, and quite honestly, it's a little unnerving, you know, to have somebody call themselves a winery when they don't actually produce any wine. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think the 300 pound gorilla in the room being halter ranch coming into Texas, um, it's a great operation. They, they make great wines. They've done great things in the Paso Robles region, but they're, strictly seeing an opportunistic avenue for them to grow wine club members and to be able to um, approach the doorsteps of the people that spend a lot of money in their operation. Um, And again, I think it waters down what we're doing here as people who are actually putting their, their blood, sweat and tears into growing grapes and producing wine uh, and employing other Texans. So yeah, it's, it's a little unnerving. And I guess the question is, do Texas wine consumers, folks that are traveling into your tasting rooms and into the region for for wine experiences, do they care where the wine comes from? Or are they just looking for a great afternoon drinking wine on a lovely patio? 
Well, I think, I mean, from the, from the inception of the Texas wine industry, right, um, by, just by the nature of being Texans, we're great hosts. We do, great, we do hospitality better than just about anybody in the world. Um, it's ingrained in like our ethos of who we are uh, as people, right, and as communities. That's how. That's why we have great, you know, small town festivals. That's why, you know, we have, you know, uh, great parties, and we're known as as excellent hosts by people from all over the world, and not just in the wine industry, just just in general, right? And so when you've got when you've got people that come here, um, and they're hosted and they're having a good time. I, I think it falls short in the vein of them understanding what wineries are, right? Because they come here and they see a sign that says winery. How do they know whether it's whether it's a winery or not? There's no there's no designation or differences between them. And I think the people, to a certain extent, um, that are in those situations, I don't think they go a long way in towards representing the fact that they are something different than say a Kerbal Hills winery or a William Chris winery or a, you know, a, a Croson for goodness sakes, he's, you know, a small operator who does everything with he and his wife. Um, and I, I don't think they, I don't think they care. They're coming for the surface at this point. And in our inception, you know, uh, just to be quite frank, we didn't have the greatest wines um, and our, and our industry was, was set up and bolstered by wines from out of state because we weren't growing enough fruit at that point. But what kept us alive and has for the entirety of our industry is we're great hosts, whether you, you know, we're just, we're really good hosts. And so I think that's, what's grown our, our regions, um, not just the hill country, but all the regions in Texas where people visit, um, is the fact that we're good hosts. We throw good parties, just to be quite frank. Um, and so I think us as the industry have done a poor job um, highlighting and expressing what we actually do as producers. Um, it's 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 kind of sad. We've taken the we've taken the road of or path of least resistance, if you will. Well, I guess the next and, phase of the evolution of the Texas wine industry is sits with the consumer, and that's to start caring about where your wine comes from. Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. I was in a meeting the other day and I, I was, you know, those people that know me, I, I kind of latch on to something and I'm not much for letting go of it. And, um, you know, winning, winning the understanding of the court of public opinion is the key, right? I, I think that when we do a good job and those that have done a good job at expressing the fact that they are 100% Texas and, and, they grow the grapes and it matters. I think those things start to take, uh, they start to take hold. Um, and it matters to the people that are, that are buying wines. Um, I think after a while, you know, I, I hate to say it. I think COVID kind of set us back on our heels because people were just out and ready to go just do just about anything that they could. And I think that kind of killed the momentum of those that were true to form, if you will, because it was harder on us. Um, when you have a million dollar bottom line, just based around growing grapes and production, it's hard to compete with people who don't have that monetary hurdle. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and they can, they can continue to throw better parties, right. They can, they can host, uh, you know, better, better events, um, because the, the cash flow that was, you know, hitting the rest of us didn't, didn't hurt as bad. So. Yeah, I heard you uh, mention something along those lines at the Texas Hill Country Winery Symposium. You you were quite frank in talking about the struggles of COVID. 
yeah, I mean, COVID, COVID was a real deal and we're still, I mean, we're still, uh, a lot of us are still recovering from it. And quite honestly, this last year, um, you know, the vacuum that was created around entertainment in Fredericksburg has been hard on those of us kind of on the, on the outer fringes from the wine sales side. Um, and so, you know, I think we're still seeing some recoil and I think now everybody's down. I think, you know, sales have been down this last six, eight, 10 months more so than anybody, um, were expecting. And I think that's just a recoil from the, if you will, the, I hate to say this, but the, the exuberance of 2020, the second half of 2020 and the, and the first half of 2021 is people were out kind of going crazy in the hill country. We kind of like, you know, we, it was, it was the quote unquote safe place to be. So people came here and spent a lot of money. And then now I think the general public's realizing like, Oh, we don't really have as much money as we thought we had to just go out and, and, and go crazy. So I think we're seeing a little recoil uh, between that and where the, the economy is as well. So I, it'll come back. If there's one thing I do know, it'll come back. But I think the biggest key behind that is expressing, um, expressing what authenticity is. Right? And that's going to be, that's going to be the key to maintaining the, the growth of the Texas wine industry. Absolutely. On a bit of a different topic, uh, one big event that happened this year was the closure of the St. Genevieve winery in Fort Stockton. That was the largest winery in Texas. What is significant about that closure? And do you have any scoop on the situation in the vineyard? I know they auctioned off all their equipment. Um, you know, I have spent a lot of time trying to get some information from UT. Um, we, it's been, it's been a little difficult. And I, and I say a lot of time. I mean, we didn't put a huge amount of time and effort into it. We did benefit from the auction um i was able to you know we were able to buy buy some things out of saint genevieve um i i think the biggest thing that's gonna be uh, kind of the recoil there's a lot of shelf space i think there's a lot of wholesale space that was is going to be left as a void um from saint genevieve being closed um and i think there's going to be some opportunities for some some texas wines to kind of fill those fill those placements. And I'm hoping that they are, um, are far more authentic and hundred percent Texas, mm -hmm. uh, when they go back onto those shelves. If someone were to step into the retail space that St. Genevieve left behind, if they used 100% Texas grapes, they couldn't do it at the same price that St. Genevieve was sold for. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate, but that's a, that's a factual statement. We're getting close. I think we're very, very close. Um, but the capital scale to get to that, it's one of those things where it's a weird chicken and egg. I think if somebody had $10 million to just jump right into the wholesale market, they could do it with 100% Texas wine. But they would need that upfront capital endorsement to be able to weather you know, the first few years of, of uh, the storm of doing that. Right? It would be pretty capital intensive uh, to start and develop that. For somebody to just jump into that arena, I think it's going to be very difficult. Um, you know, we're we're close. I mean, we've been working on some by the glass products and some and some wholesale products just so we can get some of that shelf placement uh, out in the world. But it's still probably going to be a year or so before we're at a point where I feel comfortable enough to to jump in that market. And I mean, you know, even some of the bigger guys they also see that it's not always that beneficial to them right 
um, there's not a lot of money to be made in that in that segment of the market in Texas. Okay. We also had a significant ownership change this year when Slate Mill Wine Collective uh, was purchased by Grape Creek. Is that something you think that we will see more of? Um, wineries, either a consolidation in the industry or um, just new buyers coming onto the scene to purchase Texas wineries? Um, so, yes, I guess it's kind of a two-part two-part answer there. The yes is to both sides of that question. I think you're going to see more uh, I think you're going to see more operations um, purchase purchase others when it makes sense for their growth plans. Um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to speak for either one of the people in that operation. I know that uh, you know I know that there was um, it, it was a good deal for both of them. Uh, you know, I I know that Joneses really want to focus on slate slate theory and. And they, as much as they love Slate Mill, I think their their heart was in the in the Slate Theory uh, brand, and they've done a hell of a job with that. Um, and for Brian, you know, Brian's Brian's a smart guy, and he saw an opportunity to have a, a fantastic facility uh, on the other end of the county. And so, yeah, I, I think you're going to see I think you're going to see those things happen um, as the wine industry matures. There's going to be more money that comes into it. Um, just, you know, for example's sake, when we opened Bending Branch, the money that we put into it, people thought we were insane. That um, was the most money that anybody other than maybe Dr. Becker had set down into a winery operation at that time. Um, and one of the last projects that I worked on before uh, acquiring Curvahill's winery was quite literally uh, 10 times the amount of money that we invested and so I, th- I think you're going to see you're seeing more money, right? People yeah. with people with capital are seeing the benefit of Texas wine, and uh, they're seeing the benefit of the industry. And so I think you're going to see more acquisitions. I think you're going to see more uh, smaller wineries that may be a little older that don't necessarily have succession plans being being bought or put into groups. Um, you know, uh, and yeah, it, I think the the future's we're just kind of hitting the tip of the iceberg of where things are going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, the next 10 years, I think, you know, 10 years ago, $2 million or excuse me, 15 years ago, $2 million was a huge amount of money to invest. Uh, you know, in 2023, $10 million has become, you know, where people are looking at for investment. And that, I think that's only going to grow exponentially in the next 10 years. Wow. It just dawned on me when you mentioned that um, Brian Heath, is getting property on kind of the Western side of town. And of course that's the side that's closest to Kerrville. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think he had a quote when the sale went down, something about kind of starting, he didn't say a wine trail, but something along those lines that made me think that there was more development that would be happening on that side of town. Can can you confirm or deny? Um, I mean, I have no earthly idea what they're doing. I mean, quite honestly, like I have no, no insight into what their plans are, but, um, you know, there's been, I, I'm very blessed to have been part of, you know, first what was 1851, uh, and then Augusta Venn and then now Kerrville Hills. So, I mean, I have, I've had a vested interest in highway 16 for a very long time. Um, I personally think that it's, you know, it's a well-traveled highway. Um, it's between two, 
you know, larger hill country destinations, if you will. So I, I think you're going to see a lot more investment over here. Plus, I mean, quite frankly, property's not nearly as expensive as it is between, you know, uh, Fredericksburg and Johnson City uh, on 290. I mean, 16's just still a little bit better of a buy mm-hmm. from a development standpoint. I want to ask you to give just a high-level summary of the 2022 growing season. And in the past, when I've talked about the growing season, it was from maybe the words of some of the kind of marketing spin on what the vintage actually was. And I got a little bit of pushback from some folks saying, yeah, it wasn't really all that. What's the real story? Um, I think I... um I kind of go, <laughs> kind of go two directions, right? This is going to sound like a marketing spin, but all through the entirety of the year, all I heard was how horrible the vintage was, and how rough it was, and how nobody had any fruit. And you know, quite honestly, like we did, we did really well. Um, we got really nice quality fruit. We got, um, we hit our quantity goals. Um, and you know, I know of some other folks that were we're pushing fruit other places. Um, I think that a lot of times what happens is, is that, uh, you know, to, to quote my buddy, Andy Timmons, a small crop gets smaller and a big crop gets bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was, you know, how can I say this and not, I should probably finish my drink before I finish this uh, question. But I, I think a lot of times, you know, the world loves misery it seems like these days. And that seems to be the best story that is picked up by writers and by bloggers and podcasters and, you know, uh, the quote, the media, if you will. And, you know, they don't, they don't want to hear like, yeah, we're kicking ass and things are going well. They want to hear like, Oh, the world's falling apart. The canvas killed everything. You know, we can't, the droughts killed everything. We can't do anything. You know, we're going to all shucks, you know, we're barely going to make it. And that's just not the case. Um, at least for myself and several of the operators that I know, um, I think those that navigate on an island tend to get left on an island. And those that work within like their relationships and friendships in the industry and are willing to work with other operators, uh, you know, things work out for them. So we, we're great. I mean, some of the best wines I've ever made came in this year. Um, we, have, we have just some absolutely beautiful wines. All of our incubator members had met all their goals for fruit. Um, and then, then some, so yeah, we, we had a great year I, for, <laughs> I mean, we had a great year, so I can speak for me and everybody that's in the incubator. We, we had, I think, uh, a banner year. Good to hear. I know this is also the year that the labeling compromise that finally passed a while back, this is the year that it goes into effect. So from this vintage on, if you have a Texas County vineyard or AVA on your label, the certain percentage has to be from uh, that specific county or vineyard or AVA, but the remainder also has to be from Texas. It cannot be padded with any other fruit. So Right, right. Yeah, more importantly, like, you know, percentages of county, AVA, designate, aside, it, that is a great indicator to the public as to what is actually 100% Texas and what is actually in your bottle. Um, I think that's a that was a huge step in the direction towards, you know, creating a great authenticity in our baseline uh, and what we do. And it gives the wineries that really are focused on making 100% Texas fruit across all of their products um, a tool 
to be able to do that and show and highlight it. Now we just need to let consumers know how they can tell because there's always such a surprise. Oh, you mean it might not be 100% Texas? I had no idea. Yeah, which is, I mean, like quite honestly, it's always just driven me absolutely nuts that you can put Texas on something and still it not be 100% Texas because people automatically assume that if they see Texas on something that it's 100% Texas and that's just not not the case, right? Um, and I think there's a, a huge number of us that are working towards creating some ways to to get that education out to the public. Um, I know myself and and uh, Austin Fitzer with Nobleman Wine, um, one of the wine brands I make wine for. We're we're kind of launching some grassroots education tastings around the state. Um, I'm sure he'll be reaching out to you at some point because we want to do a bunch in Dallas, uh, but. You know, we're, our goal is to to create that education in or amongst buyers. And if we can't do it from a from a reporting side, right, we're going to do it uh, from a grassroots side, just the same way that we kind of got our wines out there, you know, 15 years ago when I started this. You know, nobody knew what Tanat was, but I walked around telling everybody till they were sick and tired of hearing about it. And now it seems to be kind of a commonplace thing. So I think we've we're we're going to work very hard to. Um, put authenticity um, in the forefront of Texas wines in the next couple of years. I like it. Um, Austin already did reach out and I'm, I'm here for it. So. Oh, good, yeah. good. He's a hell of a guy. Yeah. yeah. He's good. Good guy. Good friend. One of the things that I know you spend quite a bit of time doing is consulting on um, new vineyard plantings, vineyard design, all the vineyard side of things in the mm-hmm. whole country. And mm-hmm. um, recently, I think in October, Texas A&M AgriLife put out a new report that summarizes grape production across the state. And according to that report, um, well, the high level is that there are apparently way more acres of grapevines than I ever knew about in the state, because this is the highest number I've seen from any government report um, that we've been following for several years. But they say that there are 9,300 acres of grapevines across the state and that about 2,200 of those are in the hill country. Does that, what do you think about that? Um, I, I think one, I think Texas A&M and AgriLife, uh, I think Justin has done, did a great job and the whole team that worked on that study and all the people involved in that study did a, did a phenomenal job uh, putting that together. Um, I agree. I think it's, I mean, it is the most factual thing I've seen. Um, you know, I have kind of known those numbers for a very long time because it I kind of make it my job to know those numbers um, because we live and die by where to get fruit. Right. Um, and so um, I'm super glad to see that people finally um, filled out as much of the survey as possible so we could get that information out there. It's a great tool um, when we start to educate the consumer in Texas as to what we're actually doing. Right. Um, you know, I, I had just two weeks ago, we had an event that we hosted here at the winery, uh, for, uh, the chamber of commerce and, and economic development in Kerr County. And I, I had a lady ask me a question, um, that I had to compose myself because she asked me, uh, you know, how much tanker goods we still brought in from California. And it was her understanding that, 90 she had it was she even had facts she's like 90 percent of wineries are still bringing in tanker loads of wines from out of state and i 
Kelly, Kelly had to kind of stop me from coming unhinged in front of 200 people. Um, but, uh, it's just not the fact, right? And I think this is going to be a great, another great tool and resource for us to be able to explain the reality of what's happening, um, in the Hill country. I mean, we're, we put in 30 plus something acres last year. We're going to put in another 30 acres this year. We've got hopefully, um, some more on the horizon. I mean, my goal for the incubator and the group around us is to have, you know, five or 600 acres, uh, in the Hill country or adjacent kind of county, uh, counties, um, to, to be able to focus, you know, some diversity and, and fruit. I know there's plenty of land for that. Is there still affordable land or what do you, what do you consider affordable for um, potential <laughs> acreage for grapevine? I mean, being a farmer, I, you know, it's hardly anything that's affordable to me anymore. Um, but I think there's regions, I think there's areas, right? I mean, the hill country is gigantic and I, you know, there are still areas in the hill country that you can find, you know, 6,000 to $10,000 an acre land. Um, I think that's still reasonable, reasonable land, uh, to, to put grapes on. I think it, you can make the numbers work if you're doing it for a, um, you know, vertically integrated supply chain, if, i.e. if you're the grower and you're working directly with the winery and vice versa, if you're the winery and it's going to go right into your program, I think there's, you know, the, the money, the, the numbers make sense. Um, I think there's areas just outside the hill country AVA that are still very close, right? Like, I mean, I can drive one direction and be still in the AVA an hour and a half away. I can drive another direction from my place and be outside the AVA in 45 minutes. So I think there's some regions where, you know, I think just from a, from an AVA standpoint, they're not in it, um, but they're just outside of it. And there's, there's some very inexpensive uh, land still to be had. I mean, there's some stuff out West uh, just West of Kerrville, West of Mason, that is, you know, 1500 to $2,500 an acre. Um, and so I think there's some, there's some very untapped areas for us to be looking at still. Speaking of Mason, there are two different AVA submissions, one already submitted and one in progress, um, to put two new AVAs into the Texas Hill Country AVA. Um, any any thoughts on that? I, I think the more AVAs that we can, this is my personal belief, I, that the more that we can have uh, AVA designation in the state, I think the better off we are. I mean, I, I, I just feel like, you know, that's something that is, uh, when you go to put an AVA together, it's a lot of work. Um, and as an individual or as a group of people, when that's done, it just shows how much love and care and passion people have for what they want to do. So, I mean, we've already got, what is it? Uh, there's already a couple inside of the Hill Country AVA as it is. You've got uh, Bell, Bell Mountain and then you've then. got, yeah, you've got Bell Mountain and then you've got the, what is it? Fredericksburg in the Texas Hill Country. Yeah. But oh, and that one's a mouthful. I've never I, even I've seen always... that on a label, I don't think, but it is technically yeah. possible. It is technically, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I've been kind of curious. Well, I'm not going to get into that, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is, it is technically an AVA and, uh, I don't think there's more than one vineyard that's actually in it at this point. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, the more we have them, the more we utilize them, the more we can highlight, uh, 
you know, regional distinction. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's a great thing. Uh, there's been some really good news about Texas wineries and kind of the the press outside of the state, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I noted some months ago is that Pedernales Sellers and Julie Culkin got to be on Good Morning America. I mean, it was brief, but that's cool, right? To, to have yeah. a Texas winery show up on the national morning show. Um, yep. And then also, William Chris was just recognized as a top vineyard in the world, which is quite a prestigious list. I mean, there's it so is. many lists, and it's hard to sometimes gauge which is a legitimate thing that you really want to be named to and which is just like a computer-generated nonsense. But in fact, this is a good list to be on. This is a good one. Um, and then Texas Wines also did really well in a lot of major wine competitions. And in fact, the San Francisco International Wine Competition just released their results about a week ago. And they said that there were a lot more Texas wines entered this year. And um, let me just read you what it says. This year's competition saw a significant increase in the number of entries from Texas. Many ranked among the competition's top scoring wines. So that's not bad. Yeah, that's not surprising. Unfortunately, like the way that um, the way that the market is, there's no incentive for anybody on that coast to highlight the fact that we're doing so well, which is why I think in turn, the industry sees it, their industry sees it, which is another reason why they're coming here. They, they, they're figuring it out, right? It's just like, it's why Rothschild bought property in California after 1976, uh, because they figured it out and they saw the opportunities that could be afforded them to be part of things. Um, the one thing that I would say that's different from that is when they came here, when the French uh, and Italians came to California to be opportunistic around the region, they planted grapes. They planted grapes. They made wines. They partnered with local vintners and winemakers to, you know, uh, help grow an industry. I think now we're just seeing some monetary opportunistic actions. Um, this is a place that's near and dear to my heart because we keep, we, I'm going to say the role we, we as Texans, right. Um, and a Texas industry, we continue to prove ourselves on a national stage, um, both from an agritourism standpoint with the amount of people that come here, um, with the grapes, the quality of grapes that we're growing here. Um, with the strength of our wine brands and how well they show at competitions all over the United States, you know, in Texas and New York and California. And, and we continue to get kind of pushed by the wayside. I have some theories about why, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing to me that, um, the rest of the rest of the state doesn't always see it. I, I think some of that stuff just is is not highlighted the way it should be. Can you say more about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, just to you know, like again, Shelly, you know me, and you've had you and I have had these conversations off the record where you you know, like uh, I I feel like you know I think there's market suppression outside of the Texas wine industry because I think other 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 markets are scared of what we can do and what we're doing. Right? We have a great and vibrant regulatory. Uh, backing from our state. Um, we've got a uh, great business climate uh, in our state. Um, and so I think that um, it, 
if it if there was more monetary incentive for people to highlight what's happening in Texas as opposed to the the people that are paying their advertising bills, um, I think you'd see a lot more about Texas. I think that's why France did so well in 1976 is there was no there was no monetary incentive to keep them down. Right. Um, let's be honest. California is a massive, massive you know industry. And they're not ever going to highlight anything that somebody that could so quickly jump up and take even 1% of their market share away from them. Uh, they're not going to do it. Right. And, and quite honestly, like I think we've done our, our own selves a disservice as a wine industry by playing this, you know, old, humble, all shucks, huckleberry, like, well, you know, we've done pretty good. A lot of us have worked our butt off to like get where we are. And there's not like, you know, I, I think it's I think it falls on deaf ears from time to time. Um, you know, a, a really smart guy told me years ago, humble gets you second place. Um, and, I, you know, I'm I'm at a point again where I, I'm OK with touting what I do. It may come across as being being, you know, braggatory. It may come across as being loud and boisterous, but I work really hard at what I do. And so do a lot of my friends and, and I'm okay if I've got to be the guy that, um, you know, shouts it from the rooftop that we actually do as good a job as other places, I'm going to do it. And I, I think we've given up a lot of place in the world because we have taken that, you know, that humble hospitality approach to things as opposed to, no, we're, we're doing good stuff and, you know, we shouldn't be apologizing for it. Amen. Okay, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna mention I'm gonna mention two D words, and I want you to um, briefly tell me what you want to about both dicamba and drought, which were both kind of down points in our year. Um, obviously, the drought continues. Although you guys have had some rain down there in the hill country of late, I don't know. We're probably still in a severe drought. Um, and I know the dicamba lawsuit was filed in 2021, but it continues. And the last I heard, the the judge had kicked it back out of the court where it was filed and said it needs to be filed in the counties where the land is held. So anything you want to say about either of those topics? Um, I mean, I, I heard the same thing. I just I just read that same uh, kind of that same article about the, the lawsuit a couple of days ago. Um, you know, I. I, I'm not involved in it. I, I have my opinions about it. I think that that is going to be a very difficult struggle for our farmers up in the high plains. Um, I'm hoping that they that they can, with the help of AgriLife, find some resources to figure out how to farm, you know, with it, around it, you know, next to it. Um, there's people way smarter than myself working on that. Um, I. I have watched my friends, you know, struggle through the, through the hurdles that have been created by, by Dicamba for a very long time. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if you know this or not. There was an article in San Antonio newspaper in 09 where I was talking about herbicide like back then and uh, how detrimental it is, um, not even just to vines, but just in general. So I, I, I've got my own feelings about it. Um, I don't. I would hate to comment like I know something about what they're doing or how it's working or how difficult it's been. I I can tell you I've seen my friends and colleagues and people I, I do business with struggle because of it, um, and that's that's hard because I care about all those people. You know, after 
almost a decade and a half of, of working with a lot of folks up there, it's hard to watch them, you know, struggle, struggle through things. Um, you know, as far as drought, um, you gotta, you gotta have your shit to excuse my language. You gotta, you gotta have shit together to grow grapes in Texas. Right. Like I always love it when like the California consultant or the Washington consultant comes here and they're going to tell us how it's done. And and a year or two later, they're calling people like me or Bill Blackman or, you know, or, um, you name it, you know, they're, you're calling all these other people going like, well, how do y'all actually do this? Like with drought, and if it's not drought, it's flood. If it's not flood, it's dicamba. If it's not dicamba, it's freeze. You know, how, how do you, how do you handle that? And so I think that's just part of the nature of our farming. Right. And, and I think when those of us who have looked outside the state of Texas to other regions in the world that have kind of tumultuous weather, and we've looked to them for, um, you know, advice uh, and and patterns and farming and things that they do. I think we've we've done I think we've done a pretty good job of starting to circumvent some of those things. Um, I hate to say it in a drought year. I mean, I get to most of the farms that we work with, we get to kind of control all the variables um, for the most part. Uh, that early June heat wave that came through and blasting was tough for fruit set, but you know, the rest of the year, there's very little bugs. There's very little mold mildew. You know, there's not a whole lot of things to manage and fight. So as long as you've got water uh, to to irrigate, uh, you're in generally we're in pretty good shape. Um, you know, every year in Texas, there's going to be some challenge. Um, I personally think from a farming standpoint that we have we're on the we're on like year number three of some kind of like triple blows right you had you had the stuff in 18 the the kind of sneak up frost event that happened in 18 in a long season and then again in 19 um you know we had some pretty tough winter damage early before we had kind of vines lignified i think a lot of folks learned some of the things like that we do for shutting vines down early um i've cut a lot of flack in my career because we stopped watering and we kind of shut vines down but I've seen more vine damage from vines getting frozen in October, November than I have from hard winter freezes. So I work real hard to shut vines down before the, before we get our weird, you know, our weird fall blasts down here in the hill country. Um, and so I think, you know, it's kind of like the one, two, three punch. And then we had a really wet year uh, in 2020 and there were a lot of people spraying and a lot of people were spraying. I'm going to talk specifically about the high plains. You had a lot of people spraying for, you know, weeds. Um, so there was a lot of herbicide damage on vines that were already weakened by two years of, uh, of some stresses. Um, that's my, that's how I view it. Um, I'm sure there'll be people out there that will argue and argue with me and tell me that I'm wrong, but I, you know, I've been around a long time, so I must be at least somewhat on the right vein from time to time. Um, and that's hard, but again, that's Texas. I mean, before I got in the industry, that was the first thing I learned, you know, was you're, you're going to live and die by whatever mother nature wants you to do. And you just have to figure out how to work around it. Certainly not for the faint of heart. No, no, for God's sakes. No, <laughs> no not at all. So this year, uh, wine enthusiasts made a lot of Texans mad, including me, when they said, we are no longer reviewing Texas wine. Well, then I realized, wait, you've been doing a really bad job of reviewing Texas wine in the past anyway. 
So I don't know that we've lost a ton, but it was just the symbolic nature of them mm. saying, yeah, no thanks. I mean, yeah. I, I, I know that they have their own struggles and um, financial struggles, staffing struggles, what have you, which those things are neither here nor there. Um, but the fact is that a lot of states that got kind of left behind when they did this restructuring are like, well, what about us? I, again, I don't know that we care because they had only reviewed a handful of wines anyway for the past several years. So I do want to say that that was a bummer. Um, but there were, I think there was probably more good than bad this year. And, and what I wonder is... What do you think are the stories in Texas wine that aren't being told that need to be told? Um, I mean, look, I mean, wine enthusiasts, you know, has never really done a huge amount. Um, I was very lucky and I was very flattered in 2013. Uh, I was, uh, um, you know, I was in wine enthusiasts. Texas Hill Country was in wine enthusiasts. They they kind of featured me and Doug Lewis and a couple other folks that were doing some cool things. And that was one writer who kind of fought to come here and highlight what she saw as something really cool. Um, God sakes, that was ten years ago, right? Um, since then, I think they've done, you know, I think they've done very little. I think Chris was like a forty under forty or something at one point. That was cool. Um, and presumably they'll still include Texas in their coverage, but not in wine reviews. Is my understanding. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, not, not that they've been like, you know, beating down our door to, to cover us. Right. right. Um, it's like, you know, I, I talked to somebody, uh, like when this first came out, I got a phone call from somebody out of state and they were, you know, asking me the same kind of questions. And I said, honestly, like, it doesn't really matter to me because they've never really done a huge amount of like service to my industry or, 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 Texas in general, I kind of liken it to the Spurs, right? The San Antonio Spurs were like a small market. You know, they got no love in the national media because there was no marketing dollars coming out of San Antonio, Texas. But after a while, they just kept winning, you know, championships and they kept winning another championships and their players were voted, you know, number one players of the NBA year after year. And eventually uh, the world had to go, you know, I guess San Antonio's got something going on and they had to kind of kind of notice them. Right. It's kind of like I think my it's school, just, the TCU Horned Frogs. It's kind of like your school, the TCU <laughs> Horned Frogs. Who've, I've always been a big fan of TCU. I think they've had a good program for a long time. But. Uh, Kelly's looking at me cause she's a diehard longhorn, Uh-oh. like r- rolling her eyes at me right now. <laughs> she, she's about to pull the earbuds out of my ear and hang my phone up. Um, but no, I, I think again, we don't advertise in wine enthusiasts. I think they, they're pretty, they're pretty blatantly open about the fact that if you just look at it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see like, who do they highlight? The same people that spend a ton of money in advertising dollars. Right. Um, and that's just the way the world is these days. That's not, I don't think that's necessarily wine enthusiasts. I think that's just in general. I think our world has become very surface and very pay to play and true merit and achievements are not necessarily the things that are being highlighted. And that's just how I feel about it. And so I don't think until somebody from Texas comes with a huge advertising campaign for wine enthusiasts, are they going to care? And and that's okay. I mean, it's, their business model, they're welcome to do it however they like. Um, but I think we just need to continue to not worry about it um, and just keep moving along. Um, I call it the good prom date, right? Like we all consider ourselves a pretty damn good prom date around here. So we don't chase anything. Eventually people realize we're doing really good things. So they're going to come and ask us to prom. 
And that's how we do. We just put our nose down and we focus on what we do, focus on growing more grapes, uh, focus on making better, better wines and innovating and learning every year. And, you know, someday my kids will probably reap the benefits of it. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. So I follow this podcaster and she says we focus too much on our to-do list and we don't spend enough time thinking about our to-da list, which is like the highlights. So this to me, the year end seems like a good time to focus on our tadas. And so I would love to know what are some tadas from John Rivenberg, the person, and from Kerrville okay. Hills, from the Hill at High, from uh, the Hill Country Wineries. I know you're the immediate past president. Like, what are your big wins this year? Um, I got to say, I mean, I'll start with, with Kerrville Hills and the incubator. Um, I think we have built something just super cool here. We've got great people getting incubated into the wine industry. Um, you know, there's some really great wines being made here. It has far exceeded my expectations of, uh, you know, a great environment to be part of. Right. Um, I think that kind of the sky's a limit. We're only really encumbered by, you know, financial and, and, uh, space, hurdles, if you will. Um, and so, but that being said, I think we've just done some really great things. I mean, we have like nine wineries that are at different stages of, uh, development. Um, and I think you're going to see some just amazing things come out of the incubator. Um, you know, being something that rolled around in my head for 10 years before I had the opportunity to get all the puzzle pieces together. Um, I've just tickled to death with where we're at with incubator, uh, with the people that we're working with, uh, not only from a from a member side, but um, uh, the the people that helped me build this. Right, we've got just some really really great people. We've added some great people. We've had some people that just have became highlights in their in themselves, um, and that's been really cool. Um, I think another thing that we're doing, um, you know, those that know me know I'm kind of a whirling dervish busybody. Um, we started a we we started a, a vineyard education program with Shriner University, a private college here in Kerrville, Texas. Um, they have a property that is adjacent to the campus um, where we are putting a production vineyard. It's not a it's not a glamour vineyard. It is a true production vineyard uh, where we'll be teaching uh, in the not too distant future. Um, we're working on that curriculum as we speak. Uh, we'll be teaching uh, an actual uh, vineyard management and vineyard operations uh, course. We're going to teach not the cerebral part, but the actual, the functional daily operations of a vineyard and how to go out and and be part of that that industry, right? So um, I'm very excited about the fact that we're going to be able to, to train some vineyard, uh, I don't want to call them managers and I don't want to call them viticulturists, but they will be high level operators. You know, we're going to teach them how to, how to spray a vineyard, what to look for, how to scout, how to you know, how to ground manage, um, how to navigate tractors, you know, what do you need? What do you not need? Uh, what stages do you, do you actually manage a vineyard? And so, um, I think we've got a lot of smart people out there, but I think we need more, more trained, uh, labor, if you will. Is so it that a certificate program or what? It will be. Yeah. We're going to have two different levels of certificate. We're actually going to have, uh, like a daily operations, uh, and then we're going to have a, a full-blown vineyard management uh, certificate program. There'll be more coming out about that. Um, we we have a very big uh, goal for that operation with Shriner University. Um, 
Kelly and Donna Renee Johnson, uh, Kelly Hagemeyer and Donna Renee Johnson are actually teaching what we call a winerum as we speak. Uh, it's a winerum uh, in between sessions course uh, where they are, they've got seven, uh, seven uh, undergraduate students that are interested in the wine industry and they are um, going through the actual like setup and development of a tasting room as if it was their own. So they're taking the old mansion on that property uh, and turning it into a pop-up tasting room uh, here in the next couple of weeks. They've been working on it for a couple of weeks now. And so they're going through the whole scenario of how would you start? How would you market it? How would you develop it? Um, so it's, it's really cool. Um, the goal being hopefully um, over time, developing a vine to bottle program much like you would see like at fresno state or up at walla walla college um here in texas so i i may have gotten way ahead of myself but that's the you know the next five-year goal um for that facility yeah so that's that's super exciting um from the standpoint of being able to produce more labor right so if we have more trained labor if we have more people who are interested in the industry from a nuts and bolts standpoint, we can actually achieve all the things we want to do. I know a lot of people with a lot of money who would love to put in more vineyards, but we don't have enough trained people. So I saw that as an opportunity. And so does Shriner University and Dr. McCormick, the president there, to to really kick that into gear. Um, the uh, other highlights, um, you know, the Hill at High is really cool. It's a cool spot. It's kind of a an homage to how I think wine should be shared and tasted with friends. Um it's a you know just a cozy cozy little farmhouse out there on 290. Um, we're we're loving that. We're working very diligently to add some culinary aspects to it. Um, so that's kind of like our goals for that place uh, over the next year. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean those are some of the highlights that we have we have going here. Um, I guess if I had to brag a little bit, I think. I'm very impressed by most all of the incubator members, the awards that they've won out uh, in the, the, the wine competition circuits this year. Um, you know, Abastris, I've had a pretty heavy hand in. They, they did, I mean, they cleaned up in San Antonio Rodeo. <laughs> Mike, Mike actually came up to the crush pad and he was awkwardly standing next to me. And I finally asked him, like, what, what's up, Mike? And I, he's like, get off the forklift. I need a hug. And Aww. I was like, I was like, oh my God, what happened? He's like, we just killed it at San Antonio Rodeo. And so to watch somebody that I've, you know, that I've trained and mentored and, and worked so hard to help develop, um, win, you know, and just be so elated and excited for, for him and his family, you know, with the Tony and Aaron Smith and his wife, Kristen. And, um, you know, that was awesome. Um, that, that's a, that's a really good feeling. So we've just, we, we navigate, as you well know, Shelly, I'm very passionate and I'm very vocal about what I think is right and what I think is wrong. But I also, um, you know, I work from a place of positivity. Uh, we don't dwell on the negative. There's, there's, there's not enough time, uh, to be effective if all you do is sit and you dwell on the negative. So we try to, we try to dwell on the positive and push that forward. That's awesome. Okay. You want to hear some of mine? Yes, please. Okay. I thought you'd never ask. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I didn't realize I wait, I did am I am I now am I now an official guest on the podcast? Like you're the host now. Questions? Now you're the host. Am I the host? <laughs> so So Shelly, I know you've had fantastic things happening in the world of podcasting this year and I've heard all of the great podcasts you've had. Please please tell me some of the highlights you've had this year. Oh, I would be happy to, John. Um Thank I have you. released twenty one episodes this year, which is like roughly twenty one hours of edited content, which is a lot. 
That is a lot, a lot of editing. I mean, I love talking to the people. I don't love the editing so much, but it got done. Um, and I have had tremendous growth in the podcast, and I really appreciate it that so many industry people listen to it. That makes me feel good. I've gotten to go to some cool conferences, and I think um, my favorite was, although the Texas Hill Country Winery Symposium was awesome, the Twigga Conference is where I won the Twigga Wine Press Award, which was unexpected. Um, I got to do several festivals and different events, including the Texas Hill Country Wineries Roadshow that we mentioned. Mm -hmm. I also did the Toast of Texas um, Wine and Food Foundation event in Austin this summer. I judged four wine competitions. I wrote a few articles, and the one that I was most proud of was for Psalm TV because they had not had any real Texas wine content on that uh, website, and I wrote an article about the High Plains. I worked with the State Fair to promote Texas wines and um, help them with their wine selections in the wine garden. I spent a good amount of time both in the hill country and on a trip to the High Plains, which was very nice. And I um, also was a guest on two other podcasts. And then I also hosted a podcast listener happy hour, which was really fun. Those were a few of my highlights. But I also want to tell you which of my episodes from the past year were the top three episodes, the most listened to episodes of the entire year. Although it's not okay. exactly a fair, you know, it's not that fair for the podcasts that were released more recently. But still, I mean, these were <laughs> these were very popular. Um, hey, sometimes, sometimes with facts, fairness doesn't matter. Well, that's true. I mean, <laughs> in six months, it could be, it, this could look different, but that's what I'm saying. Yes. Um, but. The, okay, so in the number three spot is Daniel Collada of Vinovium. Okay. Number two awesome. spot, Michael Bilger of Adega Vino. Okay. And the, the most listened to podcast of the year that was released last um, this year in 2022 is uh, Ricky Taylor of Altamarfa. Cool. But you know what else? You'll what? like this. Um the, the podcast that had the best first week, and I think this may end up in the top three over time, but it was released fairly recently, was actually about visiting Texas tasting rooms. And it featured Donna Renee Johnston of Kerrville Hills Winery and Victoria Calais. I love it. It's going to break the top five. I just know it. I love it. I think it's fantastic. I know, you know, I was tickled at one point that you mentioned I was, I was up there for a while, but I was one of the early. I was one of the early. Yeah, you were last so year. It was last year. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, like Ricky Taylor's was awesome. Uh, you know, Bilger and Daniel, I mean, those are, those guys are great. They're doing good things. You know, Daniel talk about a selfless soul that that guy's been working his butt off for Texas wine for so long. Um, I mean, talk about somebody who hasn't received the recognition that they so greatly deserve. That guy has done like so much for the actual, you know, Texas wine industry and he just, he, he deserves it. So I'm I glad know. that he's in that. I'm glad he's in that, that, that top three. And would you, do you know that um, he actually was the wine educator that presented the first ever Texas wine class that I did. And I know that he also was very influential for Mara and Dan Sharp who were out um, at, at Texas Davis mountains, AVA planting a vineyard out there. So he's had, his impact goes far and wide. It certainly does. He, he, I mean, you know, oh yeah, those guys, the builders are making killer wines, Daniel. I mean, that's, that's really great. I mean, 
more importantly, I think the fact that you have brought such a high level of education and a high level of like um, highlight to Texas wines. I think you, I mean, I think you need to give yourself a huge pat on the back. I know at Texas Hill Country Wineries, if we gave an award for uh, journalism, you would have, you would have definitely been in the, in the running for sure. Um, just because, you know, there's a reason why the industry has gravitated towards what you do because it's real, right? There's no bullshit in, in it. I mean, it's, you, you, you let people come on, you have real conversations, you ask real questions that are based around the realities of Texas wine, not narratives of, uh, you know, assumption. And so that's why, that's why I'm always so frank with you. That's why I always love, like, love seeing you. I, I listen to it. I'm, I'm not a huge podcast guy, quite frankly, but I, I love listening to yours because they're always uh, so insightful. Well, that's kind of you to say, I'll pay you later. No, you don't. I mean, it's true. It's, it's true. That's like, it's what we, we sit and listen to. I mean, I, I, you know, I learn things all the time. I've been doing this a very long time and I listen to your podcast and I'm like always surprised. Like I did not know that, or I did not know that person or, you know, like Ricky Taylor, I didn't, I didn't know what they were doing. And that was very, it was a very interesting one to listen to. Um, so, yeah. Well, people are fascinating and I am always intrigued by how they ended up where they did and why and I love hearing the stories of these small businesses, some of which grow to be big businesses, but um, everybody's got something interesting to contribute to this very unique Texas wine industry. So I appreciate all that you have done. You've had quite a year, and I, I'm glad that you took some time to talk through it with me. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you let me have a have a little bit of your time. I'm like, you know, getting getting the word out about Texas wine and the authenticity behind what we do and all of the um, all the people that work so hard to create, you know, these wines. Um, I think it's important. I mean, our consumer needs to hear it. Our industry needs to hear it. I think a lot of time that narrative behind authenticity is lost even in our own industry. And I think it is good for the people who maybe are not necessarily 100% Texas um, for one reason or another hear it as well so that it starts to matter to them as much as it does to, to everybody else. Um, and so, yeah, thank you for allowing me to have a platform to, to discuss all this stuff. Of course. Come back anytime. Thank you, Shelly. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to be sure and mention? Um, oh, I will say, uh, one, one thing, uh, we, uh, Kerbal Hills Winery is, uh, one of the newest members of the Texas wine growers organization. Um, we, we joined, uh, we joined that, as, that, uh, organization this last week, uh, and are very excited about, um, being part of that group of great, great Texas operators. Um, so we're looking forward to all the things that we get to do with those guys. Um, not just us, but, you know, incubator members moving into that, that authenticity narrative. So, yeah. Love it. Thanks, John. Here's hoping 2023 is the year all our Texas wine dreams come true. Well, I was thinking about the new year and doing some podcast goal setting. Here are a few of my 2023 goals and plans. I will release at least 19 episodes. I'd like to attend more wine festivals, either as a participant or as a guest. I'm excited to go to Rootstock in Waco and the Toast of Texas, both in the spring I'd like to spend time in more wineries all over the state. 
I'm considering starting to study for another wine exam. Next, I hope that there are additional opportunities, like the work that I've done with the State Fair, to work on other Texas wine projects. And finally, I plan to schedule a few more virtual podcast happy hours. This is the final podcast episode of 2022, and I'm feeling particularly thankful for the 10 individual donors that supported the podcast this year by sending me virtual Texas wine through my website. I appreciate every one of those 80 glasses of wine. While some podcasters do subscriptions or Patreon, I do this virtual Texas wine thing. If you're feeling generous this holiday season, please consider becoming a podcast supporter. Visit thisistexaswine.com and click the support the podcast tab. I've also had three incredible sponsors this year. Somli was my lead sponsor and not only sponsored every episode, but also partnered with me and Wine Cub to offer State Fair Blue Ribbon Texas wine shipped directly to your door. While that particular deal is over, Somli works hard all year to promote Texas wineries. Texas Hill Country Wineries Association and the Texas Department of Agriculture sponsored multiple episodes in 2022 as well. Thank you all for your support. I'm currently enrolling sponsors for 2023, so reach out if you'd like to add your company's name to this esteemed list. As we close out the year, please leave me a review. Thanks to everyone who's written reviews on Apple Podcasts. Stars are great, and your actual comments are even better. Please send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes to texaswinepod at gmail.com. And if you sign up for my occasional podcast newsletter, I'll email you on occasion. There's a newsletter sign-up tab on my website. You'll be the first to know about our next podcast happy hour, fun giveaways, and more. And finally, thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for ongoing promotional assistance. Visit txwinelover.com to help plan your next winery visit. I'll be back in 2023. Happy holidays and cheers, y'all. Cheers.